0: So good to see y'all this morning and uh, thank you Kyle for that prayer for those who are being affected by the hurricane right now. um, It is my hope that as we are here together that you will be lifting up in prayer uh, those who are in the Bahamas and on the Florida, you know, Georgia and South Carolina, maybe North Carolina coast who might be in harm's way. Um, And just as so you'll know is that as we get more information and know more about the extent of the That uh, there will probably be opportunities to either give financially uh, or to actually go and volunteer uh, to help those. uh, And Liz Hammock will be uh, heading that up through our, the United Methodist Church has some uh, things that they will immediately put into action. So anyway, just wanted to um, just mention that um, as we are in worship today. So we are kicking off, not kicking off, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Getting the there and the kind of the big idea in this whole message is that your direction determines your destination your direction determines your destination I think it's important to note that it's not where you hope to end up it's not where you plan to end up but it is actually the road that you're on the direction that you literally take that will determine your destination so in our world in our magoni life uh, our youngest daughter is getting married on Saturday. So, in six days, woohoo, we are almost there. The wedding plans are, you know, completed. I've tied the bow, I have everything. Now we're just waiting for the big weekend to get here. But it has made Mark and I a little nostalgic thinking about our own wedding. Uh, Mark and I have been married 33 years. And so I pulled out the, the wedding album and we were looking at the pictures and everything and just talking about our memories. And one of our memories from our wedding day, or actually the day after our wedding, uh, that we find now funny because it all turned out okay. Uh, but this is how the story goes. so, we got married in Grenada, Mississippi, my hometown, and uh, we went to Jamaica for our honeymoon. And so we were going to fly out of Jackson, Mississippi uh, on Sunday morning. We got married on a Saturday, flying out Sunday morning. And so uh, this was before the days of GPS. This is before the days of cell phones. This is when you use the paper map, you know what I'm saying, way back in the day. And so Mark, not having been that familiar with the Jackson Airport and all of that Uh, we were living in Starkville Mississippi at the time and so he actually took a day where he drove before the wedding where he drove down to Jackson and he checked out the hotel where we would be spending our first night of our honeymoon and then he drove to the airport just to make sure he knew the route he timed it you know where to park he had everything planned (laughs) That was his intent for it to all go well. That was the direction he was hoping to go in. Anyway, so Sunday morning comes, you know, we wake up, we get breakfast, we're so excited, we're headed to Jamaica, the beginning of our marriage, and we are in the car, and we're laughing, and we're talking, and we're supposed to be at the airport in about 20 minutes. We've got it all planned. And then all of a sudden, Mark looks at his watch, and he goes, huh, we have been driving for 20 minutes We should be at the airport, but it's not anywhere around. (laughs) And so somewhere along the way, we had missed a turn. I say we. he had missed a turn. <laughs> He's not in here. No, I, I can care. We had missed a turn. And so, I mean, we had to whip it around, and we we made it. We made it to Jamaica, so now it's a funny story. But I tell you that because I think it's easy to get on, you know, life is is, is moving along, and, and you, you have this picture of where you want to end up, maybe in your career, maybe in your marriage, maybe with your kids, but there's somewhere along the way, there's a detour. There's something that gets you off track. And sometimes you don't even Realize it until you are pretty far going in a direction that's not taking you toward the place where you want to get one day. So in this sermon series, uh, Mark talked about um, about driving with children and kind of he used that as a metaphor and talked about pouring into the next generation, how to do that well with our kids and and the children in this church. I talked about marriage and talked about how sometimes as husbands and wives we get in this this really kind of a negative chase of shame and fear where um, we are just circling and circling Around and sometimes the the kind of the tension in that relationship is actually hurting and eroding those feelings of oneness and closeness that are so important in that covenant marriage relationship. So we talked about that. And today, what I want to talk about is is where are you headed as a leader? As a leader, so using that driving analogy, imagine you are the one who is driving the car, and who are your companions with you, and how. are you doing as a leader? Now when I say the word leader, some of you might instantly check out and go, well, I'm not not a leader. This is what I think of. This is kind of how I define leadership. There, There are two types of leadership. There is leadership that is formal. And so what I mean by that is that you might be the principal of a school. You might be the leader of a team at work. You might be a mom or a dad. You might be a school teacher. You might be in some type of role where you have a formal leadership role to care and to lead those who are kind of in your in your circle of care then we also have what I call informal leaders informal leaders this is the person who when you're in middle school this is this is the kid that whatever they say hey let's do this Everybody just does it. Do do y'all know that? This is this is this is in that friend group, in the maybe in the social group, whatever whatever the area is. Sometimes there are people who are actually sometimes even more influential than the formal leader because of just this quality that they have within them that others gravitate and follow them. So with that setting we're looking at just the whole idea of of what's it like for the people who are in your sphere of influence. What is the climate like? What is that vibe that you give off and and what we're talking about today is is one particular quality of leadership and uh, this is something that I have seen personally I've seen it done well and I've seen it done poorly and I really believe that if as a leader if we can get a hold of this one principle I believe it has the power to be a game changer uh, for those for ourselves and for those we lead and also helping us get to where it is that we want to go. So, to help us understand this, I want to invite you to open up your bulletins, and we are going to be looking at a, a story, an event in the life of Jesus that I think kind of helps us, gives us a picture of what this quality looked like in the life of Jesus and how, because of this particular leadership quality, I believe Jesus was able to accomplish the mission that he set out to do without getting distracted or or deterred from the path, a place where he knew he had been—you know—it was—it was his job, his mission—to get there. So we are looking at a passage. It is in Luke nine. Now, just to set this up for us, uh, Luke was a uh, Luke was not one of the twelve disciples. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. Uh, you can read about his story in the book of Acts. But Luke traveled with Paul, and one of the things that Luke wanted to do was he wanted to capture the story of Jesus. He wanted to capture that story and so he interviewed eyewitnesses so he could get a accurate and detailed account of the life and the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ and that's what we find here. Now in Luke 9, Luke 9 is kind of this pivotal turning point in the book. Uh, you, Luke begins with the birth of Jesus and then Luke ends his story with, um, with the ascension after when Jesus, you know, Uh, ascends up into heaven. And Luke 9 is kind of this place where the story shifts and Jesus begins to... go on the road to Jerusalem. He is preparing his disciples. He is beginning to turn his face, if you will, to Jerusalem, which means his his death and then his resurrection and his ascension. So to set this up, though, just before we dig into this passage, I want to pull the camera back just a little bit. Some things that happen uh, in the verses that come right before what Luke says here. The first thing is, is that Jesus? Now, now, you know, people are getting healed. Uh, people, you know, Jesus is, you know, he's feeding the thousands. All these great things are happening. The, the Pharisees are persecuting. Just there's all this swirl of activity. Jesus turns and he asks his disciples and he says, Who do people, who do the crowds, Say that I am. And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? Now, remember the timing, the timing of when he asked this question. It is right before he begins to kind of get focused on, I am headed to Jerusalem. I am headed to the place where I'm going to be crucified, where I'm going to, you know, rise from the dead. So he's turning right here, and he wants to help his disciples. disciples, his closest followers kind of get ready for what's ahead. And so they, Peter answers and he says, well, you're Messiah. And at this point, Jesus, because he, he's so, I mean, he's so intuitive. He knows that when Peter uses that word Messiah, it's not exactly what Jesus is Understands that Messiah is going to mean. Peter and, and the others, and we know this as the story unfolds, they're thinking that they're, Jesus is going to be this king. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem and he's going to be victorious and they're going to get the Romans out and, and they're going to go back to the glory days of when David was king. Ra, rah, rah. And Jesus turns to his disciples after Peter makes this statement. And in Luke nine twenty two, this is what he says in response. He says, Disciples, He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He said, it's not what you're expecting it to be. The road is not the road that you think we're on. So then the story goes on. And eight days later, um, they've gone up to a mountain to pray. And while they are up there on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. um, And and Elijah and Moses are actually there on the mountain. And they appear to Jesus. One of the things that I think is critical in this story that sometimes we overlook, sometimes we we focus on it, what was Peter's reaction, what was John's reaction. But sometimes we neglect to notice what were Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? What was so critical that they, you know, came and appeared? And this is what Luke tells us. He said, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, and they were talking about Jesus. And this is what they were talking about. His departure, his departure. Uh, another in the in the Greek there, the word is actually his exodus, his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. See, there's this shifting, there's this turning. We are headed to Jerusalem. I have a purpose, I have a reason that I came to this earth. It was to show you what God's love is like, but ultimately it was to die on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. So then, Luke pulls the camera back. There's this this little boy who has a demon, and and the disciples can't cast out the demon, and everybody's like, "Whoa, oh, no, what's going on?" And then Jesus says, "Oh, okay, let me do it." And Jesus casts the demon out of this out of this kid, and I mean, the crowds go wild. They're like, "Yay! You know, this is it. Our Messiah, our ruler, our king," and they're all excited. And Jesus, in response to all of that excitement, he turns in Luke 9, and he turns to his disciples and he says, listen, listen, listen. Uh, one translation says, let these words sink in your ears. He said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He keeps articulating this, but they're not getting it. They're not getting it. And then in that context, we pick up, and this is what is in your bulletin, and and Luke is telling the story, and he says, and as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus knows where he's headed. He's very clear on his mission. He's very clear on his purpose. Everybody else didn't, but Jesus has got it. And he says that he resolutely set out. For Jerusalem now if you've got a pen and you're taking notes I would encourage you to circle that word resolutely I love that word it it to me it speaks of strength it speaks of a decision it speaks of courage uh, some translation says that he set his face uh, you know where your your face is going is you know kind of where your head is directed that that determines your your direction um, so he's he's facing he said I'm, I'm being resolutely. I'm making this decision. And he sent his messengers on ahead of him... And they went to a Samaritan village to get ready for him. Now, just a little bit of history about the Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jews were were enemies. Uh, they were like two different ethnic groups. They had a common heritage. But at some point the Samaritans had intermingled with the Assyrians and other nations. And so there was there was all this racial prejudice between the between the two. And so he sent his messengers ahead of them. But the people in Samaria did not welcome him because he was headed to Jerusalem. I don't know why they rejected him. Luke doesn't unpack that for us. I don't know if it was the racial prejudiceness. I'm not sure what that was. I don't know if they didn't accept that he was the Messiah. We don't know. But what we do know is that he wasn't welcome there. They rejected him. Think about in your own life. Maybe if you are trying to lead a group of people, maybe you are a new team member, or maybe you're new into a friend group. It's your first time at a new school. What does that feel like when people don't want you there? Have y'all ever had that experience? And maybe it's not that they really don't want you there. Maybe it's just... They're just busy with their own lives, and they're not paying any attention to you. Have you all ever had that experience? You know, sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, friend, I I came to visit church, but, but nobody spoke to me. Or I went into the Sunday school class, and nobody talked to me, and I just felt so incredibly uncomfortable I didn't want to go back. There's that feeling where none of us want to be rejected. None of us want to be kind of like, hey, we don't want you. Here, As our leader, as our Messiah, as our King, you know, we, we don't want you. I love this here is that when James and John saw this, okay, they reacted the exact same way that I want to react when my heart is hurt and I feel like people don't like me or want me or reject me. And this is what they did. They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Because we will do it in a heartbeat. How dare they reject you? We're going to call fire down from heaven. And I, have y'all ever had that? It's like, okay, you don't like me? Well, I don't like you either. You know what I'm saying? So they had all this emotional reaction. You're going to treat me bad? Well, wipe my hands. I'm going to, And I'm not just going to leave. Yeah, I'm going to call fire down from heaven. It almost feels like some of our politicians right now, you know, where there's this, 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 you don't like me. I don't like you. We're not on the same page. Well, let me just call fire down from heaven. Let me just send out God's missiles and annihilate y'all. Y'all that anger, all that coming out. But Jesus, he turned. I just am envisioning calm, peaceful, resolute, clear, determined, not distracted, he rebuked him. He goes, uh uh-uh, uh guys. And, you know, I don't know what kind of re- I don't know what rebuke actually looks like from Jesus. I was just was, I actually I was thinking about this and I was thinking, I don't know if I want to be a disciple where I like really, really was right there with Jesus because I'm afraid I would mess up and then I would just be like, oh Jesus, don't rebuke me, don't rebuke me. So I don't know. I mean, surely it was done in love. But basically, no guys, we are not gonna call down the heavenly miss- missiles and annihilate a whole village because that's not right, <laughs> you know. Um, and then He and his disciples went to another village. He and his disciples went to another village. In this passage, there is so much about leadership and determination and direction. But here is the quality that I think was the game changer. And it's this. I believe that Jesus was a non-anxious leader. A non-anxious leader. This term, the first time I ever heard this term, it was by a writer who writes about leadership, and and he's written a great book. It's called A Failure of Nerve, and I've asked Joseph to put the the title of it up there so you can see it. But he talks about how a non-anxious leader is someone who doesn't become lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about in the group. And he says the world has such a need for the non-anxious leader. And I love the way this term is phrased because in my mind I'm imagining all this kind of chaos around, around Jesus. You've got you've got the crowds who are, you know, wanting Jesus to hit, you know, they're there. It's like, Jesus, do something for me. I've got these needs. Come meet my needs. Jesus, can you get, you know, come over here, do this. <laughs> You've got the Samaritans who are rejecting him. You've got his disciples who are wanting to call down fire. They're they're fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. All of this has the potential to get Jesus off track. And so my question to you is, as a leader, as someone who has a sphere of influence, maybe, you know, whether it's a mom or or maybe you're a little league coach, when the emotions are swirling when people are angry people are frustrated people are mad at you what is going on inside of you that has the potential to get the group off course here's some things that i think help jesus be that that kind of that resolute you know i'm headed to i'm headed to jerusalem and he was not reactive to all that was going around him he was clear. One way to look at it, um, and you might have heard this analogy before, of it's, um, I've heard it several different places, and I'd love to give credit to who said it first, but I, I don't know. But the question is, is are you a thermostat or are you a thermometer? Okay, Are you a thermostat or are you a thermometer? A thermostat um, can change the temperature in a room. A the thermometer reflects the temperature in the room. Does that make sense? So in other words, Jesus, what he was able to do, he was able to change the emotional climate of all that was swirling around him because of that non-anxious inner peace and that sense of mission and direction that he carried versus being reactive. So, so the disciples were acting more like a thermometer. Does that make sense? So so the Samaritans rejected rejected Jesus. So they responded to that rejection in anger and wanting to hurt the other. So they're just in this emotional reactive dialogue dance. But Jesus was resolute. He had set his face to Jerusalem, set his face. He knew he had this non-anxious presence. What enabled Jesus to do this? I'm going to lift up just a few things. I think one of the things was that he just was clear about his purpose. He was very clear. Uh, I think about him talking to Moses and talking to Elijah there on the mountain. And all the other stuff was going on. But there was that confirmation. I came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. I came into this world to die for the sins. This is something that has been in the works before the creation of humanity. You know, this plan has been in place, and this is why I came. I know one time that I was talking to a trusted friend, and I was just, you know, and I felt like oh, I was doing too much work, and I had a coworker that wasn't, you know, they weren't, they weren't doing their job, and so I felt like I was doing my job and their job, and and so I was just, I was bitter, I was resentful, and I just was, was, you know, just mouthing, and uh, and this friend said, does anybody ever do that? Nobody, nobody ever does that. No, no, not at all. But uh, but anyway, this friend said, friend, here's what you need to do. You need to get clear on what your calling is and what your calling is not. And you need to get clear on what is in your job description and what is not. And you need to stop trying to do everybody else's stuff. Do what you're called to do and let the others be responsible for what they're supposed to do. And that that was so liberating to me and I know it's just, you know, kind of shouldn't be rocket science, but it was, it was like, oh, I need to get clear on what it is that I'm uniquely called to do in this particular season of life, lest I miss what God is hoping and planning and needing to be done through my life and through as we partner together uh, in, the, you know, in the, the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus was clear about his purpose, and because of that, I think he could have that non-anxious uh, presence, that enabled to uh, be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. I think the other thing is that Jesus was not emotionally reactive to the rejection by the Samaritans. Um, He could could stay present there with them. Uh, He could still love them. He could still care for them. But he didn't react out of that rejection. Calm, cool, collective. I, I once was, you know, uh, talking to to someone. Well, I was in a I was in a group setting. It was a meeting that I was facilitating, and uh, with some other clergy. And there was a woman in the group who has a different theological position than I do on a, a an issue that she was very passionate about. And um, and so as we were trying to dialogue, um, she just this. I felt like she just kind of ripped into me, and, uh, and you know, and was very passionate, and her words were, I felt they were accusatory, and I felt like she had twisted some things I tried to say, and so I just, I remember inside of me, you know how they say we have a reptilian brain? Everything inside of me kind of got jacked up, and, uh, but I remember in that moment, and this was one of my finer moments, but... Let me know, let me tell you, I've, I've had a lot of mess-ups. But in that moment, I knew that I didn't need to respond to her because I was going to hurt her. Because I can, you know, and not and not, with, not physically, but with my words. Because I, I was about, I mean, everything inside of me wanted to go there. Um, but I remember in that meeting, I, I literally put my hand up and I said, I'm feeling attacked right now. And I'm going to need to take a breath and kind of let my emotions settle down before I can respond to you. And so would anybody else like to, you know, just kind of chime in on, on what you're thinking and feeling right now? But, but that is what I think you, could, you acknowledge what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what those emotions are. But you don't have to react out of them. And sometimes that means just taking a time out, taking a deep breath, but saying, I need to pause right now. The other thing that I think Jesus did was that he didn't over-function. He, he didn't over-function. And what I mean by that is when... Um a group of ladies. It's in your. It's in your small group uh, listing there. But um, uh, I'm doing a Bible study at my house called "The Emotionally Healthy um, Woman," and there's a whole chapter on overfunctioning. And as I was reading that, I thought, "Oh, we do that so often as leaders. Is that we feel responsible for the emotions and the feelings of everybody else? We're kind of wanting to manage and and you know that we begin to sometimes step in and do for others what they're really responsible." For doing themselves, and so what I liked about that was that that when I think about how you know Jesus went the uh, the Samaritans, they rejected him, and it's like you know that I don't know. I'm putting in my words. It's like I'm sad. I wish that weren't the case, but you know that's okay. That's your choice. You know the disciples were angry. They've got all this swirling around, and it's like no, we're not going to do that here. And but but basically he said, but I'm going to Jerusalem. <laughs> you know I am going, and so I think that whether the disciples followed or not, Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And so I think the other thing is that he was able to stay separate, but he still remained connected. He was able to be separate. So he was able to separate himself from all that was swirling around him, but he didn't wipe his hands and just walk away and go, I'm out, I'm out. He stayed connected, and he stayed connected, and we know this. We know this because of how his disciples reacted. It says then he and his disciples went to another village. Because he could manage his own stuff and had that non-anxious presence, he was able to lead not only himself, but he was also able to lead the group as they headed to Jerusalem. I believe this one quality, being, uh, as articulated by, by Edwin Freeman, being a non-anxious leader, is a game changer. It is a game changer. And I don't think it's something that's a quick fix that we say, okay, today I'm going to be a non-anxious. I mean, I think it's something we work on all of our life. But it's really kind of living out, I think, the, the fruits of the Spirit. You know, it talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and its goodness and its gentleness and its self-control. It's self-control over those kind of reptilian emotional reactions that we're so tempted to have that create this climate that everybody else has to live in that we are leading. So let me ask you this. Think about a sphere of influence that you have. And I don't care if you are, you know, a, a second grader to 92, Everybody has a sphere of influence. You have someone that looks to you, someone that you lead, someone that is looking to you. And my question is, are you clear about your purpose? Are you clear about what God's called you to do? Are you able to be a thermostat, not a thermometer, to separate but yet stay connected? And can you keep your focus on what is that one thing, that unique thing, that I don't want to miss it in this season? Think about what would have happened if Jesus had kind of gotten tripped up right here. He was on his way to Jerusalem. Think about if he had kind of kind of gotten hooked in with the disciples and he said, "You know what? Those Samaritans. That's right. Let's just let's just call fire down from heaven." You know what? What if he had had a knee jerk reaction right then? What if? He had gotten his feelings hurt and said, oh, no, the Samaritans don't like me. Let me go, let me go over here and see if I can make them like me. You know, he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't reactive. But, but think about if he had gotten sidetracked right here. What if he had not gone to Jerusalem? What if he had not died on the cross? Think about the difference in your life because Jesus was resolute. He stayed the course. He kept his eye fixed on where it was that he was headed. Think about your own journey in your own life and those you lead. And I want to encourage you, if, if you aren't clear on, on, you know, what is it that God's calling me to do uniquely in this season, you know, spend some time asking him, seeking him. I know in our Bible study this past Tuesday night, we talked about how sometimes as women, you know, your, your, your identity is wrapped up. And I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, and, we're, and by nature, often women are the caretakers. But it's like, but i got to get clear on my calling, on what it is that I'm uniquely called to do so I don't get sidetracked here. Think of the difference that that could make in those that you lead, that emotional climate that you create when you are the one, you know, who's driving the bus.